please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 20 through 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. As we again take a look at the issue of self-control and how it is that we can exercise that unto godliness. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Please be seated. Elise and I had the privilege of spending the last half of this week uh, in Charleston, celebrating our 34th anniversary, which is actually in June, but we can't ever do it in June, so we just schedule time in August. Never been to Charleston, beautiful city, the trees and the, with the moss draping over them and the, the, uh, the port city there, beautiful to walk through downtown. And yet what I'd forgotten is that they're also, right, it's actually right close to our hotel, uh, there, there is a... Uh, display of the aircraft carrier Yorktown. Actually, the, the aircraft carrier is there along with one of the destroyers, and we were able to walk through. It took us almost uh, six hours to walk through all the portions of the ship, both of those ships, and it was truly amazing just to see the, the machine that had been devised uh, to go, be able to go to war and to accomplish the things that it did. However, uh, the true story of those machines really is not the metal and the engines, but it's the men who serve on them. And as we climbed down the narrow ladders and walked through the cramped passageways, I was reminded of the intense discipline necessary to keep 3,500 men, that's how, how many are on an aircraft carrier, 3,500 men prepared for battle and operating with utmost efficiency. Discipline begins with the captain all the way down to the men baking chocolate chip cookie dough. I think it was like 150 pounds of batter in order to make enough cookies uh, for the day for the men. And then all the way down to the pump men opening and closing steam valves in an engine room that reached about 130 degrees Fahrenheit when the engines were running. Now, this discipline was all required and maintained because it was a greater overall purpose in which the men and the machines were engaged. They weren't out for a picnic. They were engaged in war. And we have a great need to direct more of our zeal towards the mastery of ourselves by the power of the Spirit of God to joyfully accomplish all the will of God. This is only possible, however... When we believe that our God is real, that our resources are sufficient, that our Savior is worthy, and that our task is indispensable, would that we were more like the soldier serving in battle with zeal and skill and intensity because they firmly believe the rightness of the cause for which they were fighting. We of all soldiers have the right cause. And so we of all soldiers should have the greatest of intensity. I. Howard Marshall says this, believers who drink of the Spirit are thought by the world to be drunk, and indeed they are, but not with wine, but with zeal for Christian warfare. This passion to be good soldiers of Christ expresses itself not in excess, but in sober discipline. It's a true imitation of a master whose life was a mirror of discipline and temperance. So what we'll see this morning is that self-control is the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit by which we are supernaturally empowered to exercise faith in carefully and rigorously directing our mind, our will, our affections, and our conscience in conformity to the principles of the Word of God in every situation. Self-control is the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit by which we are supernaturally empowered 
to exercise faith in carefully and rigorously directing our mind, will, affections, and conscience in conformity to the principles of the Word of God in every situation that we face. Self-control undergirds every aspect of Christian living. Now, at the end of chapter 9, Paul is making a Really, he's setting the example of what it means to be able to live as a slave to all men. He has said that he lays down his own freedoms, although he is entirely free, that he really enables himself, he brings himself under, although not truly under, even the bondage of other men so that he might be able to win them. And then he gives this example, this metaphor of a race and a runner by which he uses this, this picture of being self-controlled. Because the, the issue is not so much the race and the metaphor of the running, it is the necessary self-control that is required in order to run. And Paul is saying, if I'm going to make myself a slave of all men, if I'm actually going to do all things for the sake of the gospel, the only way to do it is this rigorous self-discipline, which he says is like making his body his slave. In order to be a slave to all men, we said last week, Paul says, I have to make my body a slave. And that's first that we first bring our own bodies under control so that we can then accomplish the work and will of God. And that's what self-control is. So we're just going to walk our way through. It just seemed good to maybe take a little bit more time to understand the nature of this self-control that the Apostle Paul is urging on us, this discipline, because we too often mistake it for just kind of a, a worldly, type A personality, press your way through it kind of discipline. Like some people have more of it than others. You have more of a personality than I do like that, so you can do that, but I can't. That's not what spiritual self-control is. As we said last week, it's a fruit of the Spirit, but let's talk about it a little more so that we can understand how we implement this in our own lives. So A here is that we first need to understand the definition of self-control. What, what does it actually mean to be self-controlled? And we know that this word, this concept comes from Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there's no law. Now remember, the fruit of the Spirit is not a bunch of fruits. It's one. Right? It's a fruit with many flavors. It's a very unusual fruit. Right? You taste it from different angles and you get a different flavor. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And so it's not as though some of you have love as the fruit of the Spirit and some of you have uh, faithfulness and well, every once in a while someone gets some self-control. No, everybody has all of these. And they have them available, have this fruit available in fullest measure. And it's because the Spirit of God fully and richly dwells within you. It isn't that everyone uses this to fullest measure or expresses the fruit in fullest measure, but it is available to all. Titus 3 is clear. Verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly. Richly. We're all given at the moment of salvation to wash us clean, to cleanse us anew, to come inside and indwell us, to set us aside to, for, for the purposes of holiness, every person received the fullness of the Spirit in that sense. There's no more to be received. He didn't say you received the Spirit who was poured on you a little bit. And then you'll get some more later, and then you'll get some more later. No, all of the Spirit was received at the moment of salvation. All of the Spirit indwells you. Again, that does not mean we are making full use of all that we have. But it means that we don't need more. We simply need to take hold of what we have. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You need to live out that fruit, and self-control is one aspect of that fruitfulness that the Spirit of God produces in every believer. So fundamentally, you all have this. You have to exercise it, but you don't have to go find it. It has been granted to you, and it is to be then lived out. We are to live out the fruit 
of the Spirit. Now, this word self-control, just if you do a word study on it, is simply mastery or control over someone or something. Essentially, as we think more in, in the sense it's used by Christians, to have control over all the things by which it is shameful for the soul to be controlled. So there's an understanding that there are wrong desires that might control us. Self-control has almost always carried this connotation of you control the things that would want to control you. That's kind of the, the word study definition. Then theologically, to kind of put together the way the word is used then in the New Testament, and, and really in the Old as well, right, as we trace that word back into the Old Testament, the concept, it's the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to properly direct the inner man to think, speak, and act in a God-pleasing manner in every situation. The Holy Spirit-empowered ability to properly direct the inner man, mind, will, and affections, conscience, to think, speak, and act in a God-pleasing manner in every situation. It's supernatural. It is something granted by the Spirit of God. And so therefore, it is not this idea that maybe I have a little more self-control than you do because that's my personality. And be very careful of looking at a Christian further down the road and saying, oh, well, he's just like that naturally. Well, if you looked at me and thought that that was true, you would have made a grave mistake because early on in my life, I was out of control. I was passive. I was simply blown about by every, you know, everything that came along. I really kind of trailed along the coattails of my type A older brother. All the stuff that he did, I took advantage of. So I kind of moved in the wake of his, you know, he kind of was a mover and shaker. So he would get a job, and then he, you know, he had got a job doing lawn care. Then he, had to, he went to college, so I got that job. Well, I promptly, after he left, lost it because I was lazy and not controlled like he was naturally. I said, so do not think and do not look at my life or some other Christian's life and say, oh, they're self-controlled because they've always been that way. That's how God built them. He did not. And so when I realized as a believer that I was going to need to accomplish the work God had given without everyone around me doing it for me, I had to cry out to the Lord, God, I cannot do this. I do not have the control. I do not have the discipline. I do not have the ability to accomplish what you've given me to do apart from you working it in me. Apart from taking hold of what you've given, he's been faithful over the years to build that, and I have a long way to go. But do not look around at people who appear and who do have this spiritual discipline and say, oh, that's just because of who they are. It isn't. It's because of the work of the Spirit of God. He gets all the credit. He deserves all of the glory. When that happens, it is a supernatural thing, and we need to remember that is a Holy Spirit-empowered ability. It's the domination of the entire self by the Spirit of God, through the impact of the Word of God on the mind, will, affections, and conscience. The Spirit of God dominates you through His Word so that the will of God comes out through you. That's self-control. And again, the key here is the presence of the Spirit of God in the regenerate heart. This is not selfish control. That is, I control myself to get what I want. See, that's how worldly people do it. They're able to accomplish all kinds of incredible things, push through hardships to get what they want. That's not this kind of self-control. In fact, that is to be set aside. A type A personality, as it were, is going to have to work against everything in them to stop trying to pursue their own desires. They have to pull that back so that God can control and direct them. In fact, it's probably harder for someone who is naturally driven in certain ways to have self-control in this way, this spiritual control, because they just want to tromp over everybody to get what they want. So, by the way, you don't need some kind of a neogram to tell you what your personality is and what you can do and what you can't do. You all have the spirit of God. You all have him in equal measure, and you all are to exercise the fruit of the Spirit. So we are given this command, and Paul says, that's what I take hold of so that I can accomplish this becoming a slave of all men. Proverbs 25, 28. 
I mean, the Old Testament and New Testament speak to this concept continually. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his own spirit. I just finished a fascinating book on the, on the establishment of the Roman Empire, really from the beginning all the way to about AD 212 when, when citizenship for all the empire citizens was declared, they all were citizens. Fascinating that, that as, as they're looking at cities and as they gain in ability, as, they, as those cities gain in influence, almost always the point at which they begin to dominate a particular area is when they get walls. If they have no walls, then they're easy prey for anyone who comes. But walls take time, they take energy, they take resources, they take organization. So there's a certain amount of civilization that has to even be in place in order for a city to have walls. And when it does, it is then able to control the surrounding area. You can imagine the glee of a Gothic commander topping the hill to see a Roman city with no walls. He's like, the city is mine. That's a delight. Same way, Satan tops the city of your heart and sees your soul without self-control, and he goes, I can just walk into that thing. The enmity of sin that remains within you, it's an enemy, right? You have a new nature, and yet that sin remains within you, dwelling in your flesh, as it were, and it loves to seek to attack your soul, and when there is no self-control, your enemy is gleeful. That sin that remains within you rejoices because the battle is won, not the war, battle. That battle's going to be won. There are no walls where there is no self-control. You are open to attack, and you will fail. Not might fail, will fail if there is not self-control exercised in every situation because we either sin or we please God. That's it. Second Peter 1.5, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith. Imagine that. We have faith. It's granted to us. We are to exercise it with diligence Supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge and your knowledge self-control. And the reason that I'm studying this again this morning is that we are a church with a lot of knowledge. It's good. Got to have it. What does it say here? We are to grow in knowledge. It's part of the way that we exercise our faith. But if you don't apply self-control to your knowledge, you're not going to reach the end of that list, which was this, in your self-control perseverance, in your perseverance godliness, in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. You want to love people properly? Exercise self-control by putting into practice the knowledge that you have. You do need more knowledge. You do need more understanding. And you need more self-control, spiritual discipline to take that knowledge and to put it into practice so that you can love. When a church is unloving and they have knowledge, it means they have no self-control. That's the issue. Lots of knowledge? Not wrong. People say, stop the knowledge. Ridiculous. Stop having knowledge. That makes you arrogant. It doesn't. Knowledge without self-control won't lead to love. Your kids, you know, storm into the room after having, you know, broken your latest, you know, new gadget that you just bought. And so they come in and you just unload on them. Did you love them? No. Did you know that you were supposed to? Yeah. Did you know that stuff that you had wasn't more important than your kids and wasn't more important than expressing love to them? Yes, you knew that. Yes, you did not exert self-control. And yes, you failed. I mean, that's how that works. Did the Spirit of God, would he, was he there empowering you to not grow angry at your child, to exercise self-discipline, to love them properly, whether it be through a loving discipline or a word of, of reprimand, whatever it might be, in control? Yes, he was there. Yes, you didn't take a hold of him. Yes, your heart was like a city without walls, and you failed. That's what we do all the time. Self-control, the missing ingredient, spiritual power to take hold of the principles of the Word of God in the moment to exercise godliness so that we can love. 
This takes place over and over, every second of every day, in your mind, your will, your affections, and your conscience. That's why we're talking about it again. This applies to everything so that you might exercise proper biblical godliness. But remember, this is all by grace. You see, the Lord didn't look down and say, well, you know, you've got that personality, so I'll let you have some self-control. You've done pretty well. You're a pretty good Christian, so you get a little more self-control. Oh, by the way, I mean, you've done so much for the church, so I think I'll pour out self-control on you. I still think we sometimes view it that way. Oh, they're really impressive, or they've got this, or maybe you can be really impressive to God, and he'll give you some more self-control. You don't receive the fruit of the Spirit on the basis of your suitability, on the basis of your ability, on the basis of what you have done. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, grace for salvation, we know that, understand that, love that, unmerited favor granted to us to enter into salvation, but the verse goes on, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, what instructs us? The grace of God, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, not later, now, but you don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be godly. You don't deserve to have self-control. You didn't earn it. It is true that as you exercise self-control, it becomes easier. That is, you gain spiritual muscles. That's true, but not because you earned it. Not because you somehow deserve it, because every act of self-control you ever exhibited was supernatural. The Spirit of God gets all the credit, even while using your faculties. And if we forget that, we grow arrogant, which means we lose self-control and we start to fail. It is by grace. So take a deep breath this morning. This is not the man, just look a little better, do a little better, and get some more self-control sermon. This is the rejoice that you have been granted, this fruit of the Spirit, regardless of how much you deserve it, because you don't deserve it at all, and neither do I. You can't earn it. It is given to you. So use it, and delight in that. Stop kind of using it as a crowbar against God. Well, God, maybe I, I didn't do enough, and maybe I'm not enough, so maybe you didn't give me this grace. How could you have done anything to get grace? It's the very opposite of that. But you have it, so you need to use it. So that's the definition. Next, uh, I mentioned last week, and I just thought I would flesh this out because this is, this is such a balm to my own soul, and I hope it is to yours as well, that your Savior exercised self-control. He was a human, fully God, fully man, but he exercised self-control in everything he did, every word, every thought, every action, every attitude for all of his life. He exercised true self-control. Now be careful, I'm not saying That because Jesus had to exercise self-control, that he somehow had sinful desires to control. He didn't. We do. That's part of our self-control is controlling our sinful desires. But Jesus had natural desires, food to eat, to sleep, to pursue what is right and good. He had those that every human has because they're built into the human condition. He had them perfectly, and yet even the perfect nature that he had required that he exercise self-control in it. But I'm not saying that he had sinful desires to control simply that every natural desire he had had to be exercised or held back with self-control. I'm also not saying that he might have lost self-control and sinned. I'm not saying that. Jesus could not have sinned, but that doesn't mean that he didn't exercise self-control. Hebrews 2.18, for since he himself was tempted, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. There's a real aid that comes to us for real because Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted by natural desires, to wrestle, to keep himself under control. He never allowed any one of his desires 
to be exercised in anything other than a perfect manner. Let's just consider a few of these things. Jesus controlled his physical appetites. Jesus got hungry like you or I. He controlled them and directed them according to the word, according to the will of God through the word of God. Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. It's important that the text tells you that. He became hungry. Hungry is a natural desire, particularly after you have fasted for 40 days. Supernaturally empowered for the 40 days, it would seem, because you need or drink. And now, after this is done, he becomes hungry immediately, right? And the tempter came and said to him, at that moment, he becomes hungry. So what does the tempter do? Comes and tempts him to misuse his natural desire of hunger to step outside the bounds of the will of God. He says, you're the son of God. Command those stones to be bread. Is that sinful? No, but to do it clearly, Jesus says, it's not what God has given me to do. I'm not supposed to get my bread that way because he comes back and says, Jesus says, He answered and said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Total self-control to say, yeah, I could turn those stones into bread. I am hungry. That in and of itself is not inappropriate, but it is not according to the will of God. In this situation, I will not do it. Be gone, Satan, as it were. A thousand times every day where we have to control our natural desires, directing them properly through the principles of the word of God so that we do not sin. Jesus did We need to. He controlled his time. Now, see, here's one thing that we tend to to excuse. Well, you know, I I don't control my time very well. My time's out of control, and my my time is in everyone else's control. No, your control of your time is built around your control of everything in you. You are not forced by your circumstances, as it were, to be out of control with your time. Imagine Jesus constantly interacting in relationship, loving people more than you or I ever loved them caring for them, in proper relationship to them, yet always using his time wisely in light of what had to be done, not in light of even what relationships seemed to demand for him to do. Because we make all kinds of excuses this way. Well, I wasn't going to do that, but, you know, that person I really like, they wanted me to do that, so I ended up doing that. Right? You know, well, you know, that friend of mine just said, we should come do this. All right, I got to come do that. We, we often make excuses based on what other people seem to the pressure they put on us, and we don't control our time. Imagine Jesus' love for his mother. Jesus loved his mother to a greater degree than you ever loved your mom, ever. Cared for her, desired to respond to her, did, was in obedience to her, yet she comes to him in John 2, 2, 4, and asks him to do something, and Jesus said to her, woman, it wasn't a turn of disrespect. It was addressing her properly. Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Here he at first refuses even a request from his mother because his time was not to be directed that way. Perfect control. Imagine when Jesus heard that Lazarus was about to die. He loved his friend, loved him more than you loved any friend ever. Felt grief and, 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 and felt the weightiness of other people being sick. You feel it. Jesus felt it perfectly. Lazarus is dying. John eleven six. so he heard, when he heard that he was sick, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Can you imagine the self-control? To not run immediately to the side of Lazarus and heal him so that he wouldn't have to go through the pain of dying? Why? Because God had a greater purpose in that, and Jesus controlled himself to properly use his time to wait. Can you imagine what it was like for him to control his emotions and his grief over his friend while he waited those two days? No, you probably, well, you can't imagine because you grieve over your own friends. 
but you cannot imagine it to the extent that Jesus had it because he loved perfectly. He controlled his time. He controlled his passions. That is, self-control is not just holding back natural desires. It is properly releasing our godly ones. Think about when Jesus, when he steps into the temple. So he comes into the temple, and what does he see? In his father's house, the place that was to be a house of prayer, a house of worship, he sees people buying and selling, which really was they're, they're dominating the people, harming the people, false worship, desecrating the temple. Had Jesus had no self-control, what would have happened? The temple would have ceased, actually, the people would have ceased to exist in a moment. He had the power to do that. And God has, at times in the past, immediately brought his wrath upon those who are instantly turned to smoldering rubble. Jesus, as the Son of God, perfectly exercises his passions and does what? He braids a whip. He races through, walks through, we're not sure, strides through the temple, overturning the tables, using the whip to drive the men and the animals out. Perfectly exercises the zealousness of passion for his father's house. Not too much, not too little. Perfectly exercising zeal. John 2, 13. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords, drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured over the coins, out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables to those who were selling the doves. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. How many things have you excused because of some kind of zeal, even what you said was a righteous zeal? And you excused an improper exercise of it, blaming it on a zeal for God. This happens all the time. I see people out there all the time. Well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that in the name of God. It's a travesty. They're not properly exercising their zeal for the true God through the principles of his word in proper spiritual self-control and they bring great harm upon the name of God. So Jesus perfectly exercised his passions. He had control of his pride. Now, hear me carefully. I don't mean sinful pride. I mean just his awareness of who he was. We all have that. We know who we are. We know we've been given things to do. The awareness of ourselves, we sometimes call, I, I was trying to get away from the word ego because it's a kind of a psychological term, but because he had control of who he was. And the way people treated him, he responded properly to them, never allowing his own pride or his own understanding of who he was to drive him to sin. Jesus had the right to speak back to make fools of his accusers and his torturers. He demonstrated self-control in accomplishing the will of the Father, which was that he would go as a lamb to the slaughter. He would entrust himself to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. No deceit found in his mouth. While suffering, he uttered no threats, while we're being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He knew who he was. He had every right to respond back to them. And yet he chose not to, exercising perfect self-control, to speak perfectly, and to entrust himself to the one who judges righteously. If we could just do that, if we could just take our own selves, as it were, under control and not feel like we had to have a right to someone to do this or that, imagine how far that would go in enabling you to be a slave to all men as Jesus was, but not without control of your ego. I got my rights. I got to have this. I'm going to get this. Jesus laid those things aside, took a tremendous self-discipline, and he did so. This passage uh, alludes to and 
James 3, 2 alludes to the same thing. Jesus controlled his tongue. I mean, what does the Bible say is the most difficult part of your body to control? The tongue. Jesus controlled it perfectly. And we already said there in 1 Peter 2 that he did not sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. James 3, 2 says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Jesus never stumbled in what he said. He was a perfect man, and he bridled his whole body as well. How many things come out of your tongue that shouldn't? How many things do you let escape the gate of your mouth that should be locked up there forever? Jesus never did that once, but he understands your wrestle. He understands the difficulty that you want things to come out of your mouth Jesus never allowed them to come out when it wasn't perfect. Every word, every nuance, every tone of Jesus' was perfect. No sly sarcasm really meant to harm. Right? Always the proper way of addressing each individual in his sphere of influence. And then Jesus controlled his grief and anxiety. Jesus controlled his grief and anxiety. Oh, we live in a world today that tells you that you are to let full run, full expression of all your emotions, particularly grief. Is it wrong to grieve? No, it's biblical. Right? Is it wrong to have a certain kind of anxiety? There's a kind of anxiety which would fear for other people's salvation or fear when difficult things come. No, that's not wrong. It's biblical. The world says that you can be crushed by those things. You, you just allow full reign to them, and so you become emotionally harmed, emotionally crushed for your whole life. It takes self-control to grieve properly, to not allow your passions, to not allow your grief to overwhelm you, and each of you knows what this means, if you've lived longer than about 20 years, and some of you who have lived younger. You know what it means to have to control the griefs, the difficulties, the agonies that rise within you, and probably my older congregation here more than anyone, having to walk and wrestle through a world that seems to be falling apart, people dying around you, loved ones who, who, and friends who are dying. You have had to experience and control your grief in ways that I never have, and yet the Spirit of God gives you the ability to do that, and Jesus did that before you. Greater grief than you will ever know in taking the wrath of his own father against the sin that he never committed. Greater grief than you will ever or I will ever understand of being forsaken, as it were, by his own father. Never breaking the relationship of the Trinity, but a true thing that happened to Jesus. He knew the grief of this, and he walked through it with self-control. Consider the garden, Matthew 26, 36. Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. It is interesting. It would seem that even here, Jesus had control over his grief and distress, and he began to experience it fully in the right place at the right time. That's why he went there. He went there to grieve. He did not allow it to dominate him at the supper. Imagine, dominated by grief, unable to speak with his disciples, not giving them the final instructions that we receive in the upper room discourse. He did not allow his grief to overwhelm him at that time, but waited until the right time to not be improperly overwhelmed, but to express it properly in the right place. This is amazing self-control. It is supernatural, spirit-empowered control of even his grief and distress. There's a time to grieve, and a time not to grieve. And Jesus knew exactly when it was. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. It's not sinful grief. 
he was about to take the wrath of God. Not only the physical suffering to rip apart his body, but also the spiritual suffering to be separated in that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To take his wrath as the perfect holy God. He never did actually sin. He wasn't taking the wrath of sins he somehow committed. He was perfectly holy the entire time and dealt with the wrath of God against that sin. You and I will never know that kind of pain ever. We will never know that kind of grief ever. Do you think that your God does not know the grief you face if you do your wrong? He does. You do not need to be debilitated by this grief. You may run to him because where did he go? He went to his father. In this grief, what did he do? Instead of being overwhelmed by it, he turned it back around. He says, remain here and watch with me. He went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed. Really, that's it? I mean, that's all he did? No cognitive therapy manipulation? No pseudo-psychology that masquerades as wickedness? No, he prayed. That's all you got for us, Chris? That's all I got for you. Because God is real, and real prayers to a real God, when we are really indwelt by the Spirit of God, have real impact, and they change us. He prayed. He cries out. Now, Jesus, three times, pretty deep grief. Pretty deep grief, three times as he sweats drops of blood, he cries out to the Father, even there expressing his desires that he didn't allow to dominate him. Not my will, but yours. Not some sinful desire to not do what God wanted, the natural desire to say, I don't wish to be separated from you in any way. Right desire, but not the one to be expressed because it had to be subsumed under the Father's will, and he did self-control. But who did? The Spirit of God. Jesus was indwelt from the time, from, from his birth, and then especially at the time of his, when he enters into his ministry, and, and kind of a unique empowering, but nonetheless indwelt by the Spirit of God at all times so that he could go to the Father, pray, and not assert his own will, as it were. He says, not my will, but your will. And he came to Peter and said, so you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying so that you will not enter into temptation. Look, just pray with me because you're about to have the same thing happen to you. I'm about to go away. Peter didn't pray. He failed. Jesus did pray what? He succeeded. I mean, that's what happens. That's how we exercise self-control. God ministered to him faithfully. So I hope that, I hope you just rejoice in that. That your Savior has gone before you exercising self-control and the power of the Spirit of God in ways that he calls upon you to do in ways that he strengthens and empowers you and even more understands. No biblical counselor can sit there and truly empathize with you in the way that Jesus can. I'm not saying that they shouldn't try. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be empathy. The Spirit of God within you knows the grief that you face greater than I will ever know it. And your loving Father is ministering to you through the Spirit and through His Word in ways that I never could. That's what God does. He asks you to exercise self-control. He empowers you to exercise that so that you might accomplish his will, so that you are not overcome by your emotions, your life ruined, your ministry wrecked, people around you devastated because you have no self-control. Jesus exercised it because his father was worthy and the mission was necessary and the purpose was right and so do we. Why do we do this? What are the elements of self-control? I think it's important to kind of break these things down a bit because I think it still feels like, well, all right, how do I even do that? It seems impossible. To, I mean, do I have to crank up my belief, you know, turn it up to the, to the super high belief measure? What do I do? Well, you just exercise faith first. 
just, I say. Exercising faith is the fundamental response of every believer in every situation, and you are empowered by the Spirit of God to exercise that faith. When you heard the Word of God, the Spirit strengthened you to exercise faith to believe it unto salvation. He also strengthens you to exercise faith unto sanctification and self-control in every situation you believe. Self-control is activated by faith. When we believe what God has said, we are strengthened to desire it and to accomplish it. We exercise faith, but we are also granted it as a gift from God. If you want to know how to overcome your desires and properly display your passions, you must first exercise faith. Well, Chris, how do I do that? I mean, I mean, I believe. Yes, okay, you've exercised faith. I don't have some secret to you. Crank up your faith to, you know, super hot fervency, sing really loud, jump up and down. You believe. You, you, you say, you again acknowledge, God, I believe that. That is true. I trust you. Now, that's living it out. I understand that there, there's, there's a nature of that. But simply, you constantly are reviewing in your mind the truth that you know and, and responding back to God in faith. God, I believe that. That is true. You don't have to do, you don't have to do again, some special thing. How do you believe harder? If I sit here, I believe harder. Do you believe? And if you're a Christian here this morning, your response back to me is what? I believe. I believe that Jesus did these things. I believe that he is this. I believe that his word is true. You're sitting here responding, resounding with everything I'm saying. You believe. You need to remember that in the moment of crisis. Remember that when you are assaged by temptation. Remember what you believe. Rehearse it. Think about it. Respond to it. Pray to God about it. Exercise faith. What is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You don't see it. Of course not. Otherwise, it's not faith. Well, Chris, I don't see God. Of course not. You believe in Him. You exercise faith towards Him. Hebrews eleven six. 6, what's bound up in faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe what? That He is. Do you believe God is this morning? Don't raise your hand. Just think about it. If you are a Christian, that's the fundamental thing you believe. The God of the Bible is. And that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him, which is He's good, He's worthy, it's a fear of God and a love of God bound up in that faith. He's worthy. He's right. He's good. He's the king. I believe him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, your heart rose at that. That's what we believe. That's why we're here. We wouldn't be sitting underneath this hour-long sermon if that wasn't true. We would have exercised the self-control to walk in these doors if we didn't believe that our God was good, that he was the rewarder. Cling to that then. When you are tempted to be angry, when you are tempted to be grieve, grieving in an overwhelming way, cling to what you know to be true. Go back to the reality of the cross, the reality of what God has done. Believe it. Remind yourself of it. Cry out to God to strengthen you, to cling to your belief. But you don't need something special. You already have something supernatural. We believe, despite the fact that we cannot see, we believe that God exists. We believe that God is worthy. And he's the rewarder. We believe that he is good. What he brings into our lives is good. What he withholds from us is good. What he commands us to do is good. What he commands us not to do is good. And bound up in that is we believe that being conformed to Christ's image is our highest good. Why? Because God is good. And because when Christ is exalted by our being conformed to his image, then God is exalted and Christ is made to look good. And every believer sitting here says, I want Christ to look great. That's why you're here. If you're sitting here going, what are you talking about? Either you just have not been well taught or you're not a believer. You are here to make Christ look great. You believe that because you know that God is good. And you know that that is for your very best. I mean, how couldn't it be good to look like Jesus, the perfect 
man, how could that not be good for you? It is to be conformed to his image. But if you're a Christian, I don't have to pound that home. I don't have to jump up and down on the pulpit. Like, of course we believe that. We're Christians. That's what we believe. That's why we put faith and trust in Christ, because he's worthy. We believe that he's worth these things. And we believe that being conformed to his image is right and good, and that belief carries you through unto self-control, unto self-discipline. We believe Scripture, which is a corollary to this. So that's number two, you believe Scripture. I mean, how, how could you not? This is God's Word. The Spirit of God wrote it. There's lots of good reasons to believe it. All the manuscripts and all the evidence and all the, all the ways it sticks together, that's all right and good. We don't believe for no reason. You don't believe that God exists for no reason either. You see what He's created. We could go on. But nonetheless, you still have to believe. And I find this in counseling all the time. The moment you start to waver as to whether or not this is really true, you're done. That's your excuse. It's your back door out. Well, maybe this isn't true, so what does that mean? I don't have to actually do it. I don't have to love my wife because maybe this isn't really true. And it's really hard to love my wife, and she's really difficult, and she's doing all these things. And so, you know, I'm not sure this is true. Well, the only reason you would say that is so that you don't have to do it. And you don't have self-control if you don't believe that this is true. Every word, every concept, every principle, every command is true. We believe that you're a Christian. You sit there going, we believe that. Well, that's what fires the fuels of your self-control, fuels the fire of your self-control. We believe Scripture. We believe it's God's inspired word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. It's His very words. By the way, Romans 8.29 was the, this expression that we know that being conformed to the image of God is our greatest good. For those whom He foreknew, we also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we believe that Scripture is true. And so if we're going to exercise self-control, we believe that God is real and that he is good. We believe that Scripture is true, and we seek the Spirit. Whoa. Got a little charismatic here. Seek the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, let me put it to you another way. You read and pray. Does that sound better to my anti-charismatics? And yet are we fully and totally charismatic and that we seek the fullness of the Spirit of God in our lives at all the time? All the time, I hope so. If you're not that, there's something wrong with you. You're not a Christian. I mean, you would want the Spirit of God to exhibit full control over you at all times, supernaturally empowering you to do everything that God has called you to do. It's not charismatic, that's biblical, which is the Spirit of God working, His gracious gift of the Spirit working in you. And so we read and we pray because that's how the Spirit is sought no, no magic things we do, no cranking up some kind of emotion, no special dances or jigs or writing pentagrams on the floor, weirdness that goes on in the name of Christianity. We read, we pray. You can add singing into that because it's, it's very similar to those things. We worship. Ephesians 3.14, this is what Paul did. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He strengthens your inner man. And so you cry out to him, Lord, I need your strength. It shows your neediness. It shows that you recognize where the power comes from. And so you pray. And so you read the word because that's where he has given you his inspired writing, his inspired instructions. Give me a word. He has 66 books that he illumines to your heart and mind and strengthens you, your mind, your will, your affections, your conscience to obey, but not without those things. That's how you seek him. Right? Chris, all we got was faith and read and pray. Yeah, that, that, that's supernatural. It's what you do. 
Now, you could add to that, which I will, maintaining eternal perspective. Now, this takes self-control also, but it's sort of like eating. In order to stay alive, you have to eat, and you have to exercise your will to eat, but if you don't eat, you can't exercise your will because you die, so they go together. Self-control, to have an eternal perspective, to know that this world is not my home, but then also when I know that, I have that eternal perspective, I then gain in my self-control. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say in, in the text that I exegeted last week and not this week? It says the prize that the earthly Olympic athlete seeks is what? Perishable. The prize which you seek is imperishable, eternal. You don't have it yet. Keep an eternal perspective so that you control yourself for the things that are coming. See, people will discipline themselves for a certain period of time to get what they want. When they don't get what they want, they lose perseverance. While Christians are disciplining ourselves by the power of God to get what we want, which is the return of Christ. And so we persevere to the end. That's our desire. You don't have that eternal perspective, you'll fade. You'll stop. You'll bail out, bail out of your marriage. You'll bail out of your friendships. You'll bail out of a church. You'll, you'll bail out of whatever because you have no eternal perspective. We need to have our eyes fixed. Paul says it. I run is not without aim on the finish line, not the temporal line. Maintain perspective. Commit to the church. I mean, you can't run. You can't have self-control if you aren't surrounded by people also living in such a way. At least that's how we were built. First Peter 2, 5 you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We were built to have self-control together. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. We walk with each other and we live in commitment to his local church and as we exercise self-control in it, we gain and are strengthened in our own self-discipline and others. We have to recognize, confess, and repent of sin. That's number six. Recognize, confess, and repent of sin. Without an ongoing recognition, confession, and repentance from sin, we're loaded with guilt, hindered by harmful habits, and this makes self-control almost impossible. Do not try to slap self-control on top of a guilty conscience. It won't work. I just can't. I don't have any self-control. I can't seem to do spiritual things. Got unconfessed sin, things you are refusing to deal with? You're in a man that's weak. And the Spirit of God is thwarted in that sense because you refuse to recognize, confess, and repent of your sin. Psalm 37, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Think about that for a minute. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Some of you are lacking perseverance and self-control because you are refusing to deal with sin and you are weak. We must deal with the sin that remains. And then practice thankfulness. Be grateful. One of the driving forces behind a lack of self-control is a lack of thankfulness to God for ourselves, for our circumstances, for our finances, for our friends, for our health. No joy, no rejoicing in God for your circumstance, very little self-control. You don't control yourself because you refuse to be satisfied with what you have. Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. These are the 
underlying fundamentals of exercising self-control, which just sounds a lot like the Christian life, right? And yet it is. So let's just, by way of application, I know you've got a bunch of blanks there. You're like, what are we going to do with those? These are simply areas that I want you to think about. See, because, well, okay, we gave you, Jesus did these things, and, and, and here's the foundation. Well, what do you exercise these in? Well, let me give you some thoughts as to what you need to think about, talking points for this afternoon. You need to exercise self-control over your fear and anxiety. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but power and love and discipline. What are you anxious about? What are you fearful of? Those things will drive you to anger. They will drive you to sin. You're going to have to recognize the thing you fear. What am I not? What are you not getting? What are you not going to have? What's been taken from you? And then you need to recognize that God is good when you don't have it, when he does take it, when you don't get it. And you need to cry out to him to strengthen you so that you overcome your anxiety. You need to control your anger. You need to control your anger. A fool loses his temper, Proverbs 29, 11. A wise man holds it back. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. A city without walls, no self-control. When you want to get some walls around it, well, then you don't give in to anger. And if you don't get angry, you're better than someone that can actually capture a city. And yet, so often we won't even... We don't even identify what's driving that. What, what am I not getting? What, what do I not have that's driving this anger? You won't even go that far, scripturally analyzing your situation, and so you just stay angry. You have to acknowledge those things, recognize what you aren't getting, and trust God. Instead of being angry, you exercise your will towards kindness and graciousness and truth. Men, you're angry that your wife doesn't respond with respect and honor to you? Direct the energy of your anger towards being an honorable and respectable man rather than erupting at your wife. A lot of energy you waste exercising anger towards her when you ought to take that emotion, as it were, and the thing that's driving it, I'm not getting what I want, and turn it back to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to give what you want me to give her. Women, I'm upset, angry, your husband doesn't love you and cherish you by being more Christ-like. Direct the energy from your anger towards being gracious, gentle, and encouraging rather than manipulating and badgering him. You will gain nothing. Exercise self-control to turn that energy around to recognize your anger over what you're not getting and instead give what God would have you to give. Control your sexuality. Ephesians 5 says immorality or impurity is not even to be named among you. This is one of the hardest areas to control. This physical desire that in its, at its very base is right and good but so quickly is twisted in us and emerges from us in a twisted way. You answer to God for your sexuality so you can remember that he is the one who built it. And so by faith in him, you recognize that the expression of it properly in marriage is the only place and you keep it there because you know his will is good. When a desire rises up within you, you're a man for another man. You say, that's a wrong desire. So I'm not going to orient my life around a wrong desire. I'm going to take that desire under control and direct it properly towards a biblical end and a biblical goal so I'm not run by my internal sexuality ever. Any time, whether it's unto adultery, unto homosexuality, unto transgenderism, you never obey the desires that rise up within you. You control them according to the principles of the Word of God. Your sexuality is no different than anything else that rises up within your heart. It is to be controlled and can be because the Spirit of God gives you that strength. Control your immaturity. This might be the hardest for my young men. You know, one command to young men be sensible. That's the hardest command ever to a young man because you've got all these things going on in your head. I just want to do this, and I want to say this, and I want to go here, and I want to do there. A lot of those things are really great, but you've got to control them through biblical principles. Control yourself, young men. Be sensible. 
Stop just going off. A lot of things in your head should never be said, never done. Control yourself, young men. Learn how to do this or you will be an old, intemperate man. And that's even more ugly than a young and foolish man. Young, foolish man, I generally expect. An old man unable to control his passions is a travesty. It's grievous. So young men, learn this. Young women, learn to be modest. I I don't mean, and that's kind of the contrasting command. Interesting, my clothing? No, no, no. Learn to understand what the world expects of you, how you are living in light of what the world expects. It often shows up in your clothing. It certainly shows up in your actions, just as young men try to please the world by being insensible. So young women try to please the world by being immodest in a variety of ways, both behavior and clothing. Learn how to dress and live and think in ways that please and honor God, not please the world. This is maturity. It's hard to think of anything more ugly than an old woman who is immodest that you haven't even learned. Right? Young women, you would, you would expect that they're learning it. You need to learn it, young women. Obviously, everyone needs to control their immaturity. Control your ego. And that is, think of yourself properly, Romans 12, 3. Because of the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Control your ego so that you understand yourself properly. Stop taking enneagrams. Stop taking personality tests. Not that you can't do that for work. That's all fine. It doesn't reveal who you are. God knows who you are. The scriptures reveal who you are. And you are to live according to that reality. You live according to what scripture says you are. No more, no less, as it were. Control your prayer. That is pray. Specific aspect. First Peter says, the end of all things is near. You have sound judgment, sober spirit. Why? To pray. So it's a particular aspect of self-control to pray. Control your ministry. That, that's your, the way you relate to the local church. Properly orient self-control in the things you do. Going to church when you need to. Staying home when it's better. Caring for your family. Doing the things within the light of the church and the things God has for you. And not abandoning yourself inappropriately to ministries that you shouldn't be part of. But not abandoning ministries you ought to be doing or living and doing them in such a way that simply gaining your own pleasure. Control your ministry. That's 1 Corinthians 9 that I read last week. Control your thinking. At the root of every emotion, attitude, and action is a thought. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You think a thousand thoughts a second. You're supposed to control them all in the infinite supernatural power of God according to the principles of Scripture. A wrong thought gets immediately flagged by your conscience. It then get cha- it gets changed according to your will by the knowledge of the, of the truth of the Word of God and turned either totally abandoned or turned into something that's right. That's your thinking all the time, every day. You never allow yourself to simply be driven by what you're thinking. You control your thinking with self-discipline. And you direct it properly out of your life in will, affection, words. And then control your tongue. Control your tongue. It's just points of application. Control your tongue. Think about what it is you're about to say. Now, of course, controlling your thoughts was the first part of that. But you guys... Even when you're wrestling to control your thoughts, if you just will not let things out of your mouth, your life would be so much better and you would be so much more of a blessing to be around. 
Control your tongue. If you're raging in your head trying to get that under control, make sure it doesn't come out of your mouth. Build it, beat it back at least that far, and then quell it in your head. But don't let it out of your mouth. Children, back to your parents. Children, to your siblings. Parents, to your children. Husbands, to wives. Friend, to friend. Church member, to church member. Control your tongue on the basis of the principles that we've talked about. And this world will be absolutely transformed. They'll look at a group of people doing that and they'll go, we've never seen anything like this. All to the glory of Christ, not to your glory, all to praise and honor him. They'll go, we've never seen it. We want to be part of it. Tell us how to overcome the fact that we are dominated by our own desires. Show us how to do this and we will show them Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths from your word. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, went ahead of us to discipline your body, to make it your slave, that you might accomplish the work of your Father. Lord, help us to do that work as well. Strengthen us unto the work that you have done and give us joy to show a world what it is like to live with the fruit of the spirit of self-control, blessing and encouraging and strengthening all around us. In your precious name, amen.